Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Cat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you're interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Julie Wald, and she has written a book called Inner Wealth, How Wellness Heals, Nurtures, and Optimizes Ultra-Successful People. Thank you for coming on, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. So, how can I become ultra successful? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I think, listen, you know, the book that I wrote certainly speaks to the work that, that I've done over the years in coaching really high performing people in all realms in business and sports and entertainment. And that's been really amazing because I've learned a lot from those people and many of them are extremely intelligent. And, um, you know, at the same time, I've worked with a lot of people who I would characterize as ultra successful, but maybe not quite on the same um, level in terms of the outward, outward wealth, the financial wealth that they've achieved. So um, perhaps you are already ultra successful, my friend, <laughs> mm. in, in terms of your level of inner wealth. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, what, what I think is really interesting to think about is the concept of resources. And, you know, usually we think of people who are, you know, ultra successful or wealthy as having um, a lot of resources, and they do a lot of external resources. They have they have money, they have things. Um, you know, there's so many things that are considered resources that that live outside of our our body. But really, what I'm interested in is people's inner resources. What kinds of coping strategies they have? You know, what what kinds of tools they have? The mindset they have. Um, really those resources that serve them from a mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical level. And, and I think if we can cultivate inner resources, then we have inner wealth. And I know a lot of people who have a lot of external wealth who perhaps, you know, feel as though they could use a little more inner wealth, if that makes sense. Hmm. So my main coping mechanisms are sleeping, eating cake, and driving around and giving people the finger. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's all I got going on for me. So, so what would you recommend for somebody like me? <laughs> well, that's a great question. So, um, 
You know, what I talk a lot about in my book and a philosophy that I use in my private practice and in my business, which is called Golden, um, is really about the four pillars of wellness, which are movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment. And these are the four major kind of ingredients for well-being. And, you know, they're we all need different types of tools that fall into those categories. And some of us lean towards one more towards one direction than another direction. So if we think about your, your resources, um, we can think about sleep, which is actually a very important resource. Um, it's an incredible coping strategy and, you know, of course, too much of a good thing is too much, but, you know, sleep falls into that stillness category and, you know, and is really, is really important. And I do about 18 uh, hours a day. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. And it's just like a recipe, right? You balance the ingredients and, you know, figure out like, butter is good, but if there's too much butter, you know, the recipe might not taste so good. So it's, um, it's really all, all a question of dosage, so to speak. So cake, there's nothing wrong with eating cake. Cake is awesome. Cake falls into that nourishment category. It's sweet. It's delicious. If you eat too much cake or only cake, that's a dosage issue too, you know, too high of a cake dosage there. So we got to get that in check. And you know, driving around and giving people the finger, you know, I'm not quite sure that's some sort of like it's a New Jersey cathartic release. <laughs> and um, I guess we could put that into the movement category because you're certainly driving <laughs> and there's movement involved in that. And so maybe that's a, a lovely cathartic release for you. And okay, so then I'm only missing one. I've got three, three of the pillars. Which one am I missing? Well, actually, Giving people the finger is a form of connection. Ah. You know, you're having a, a little moment of connection with people there. And so, you know, you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, driving around, movement, giving people the finger, connection. <laughs> there you go. You're hitting all four of them. I could hit all four at once, drive around, give people the finger, eat cake, and sleep at the same time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So it sounds like I'm doing everything right. You know, I guess the real question is, how do you feel? If you feel good, if you mentally feel good, if you physically feel good, you know, then that formula is working for you. I'm actually, you know, not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of doing you. You know, you, you need to do you. And, you know, I could sit here all day long and tell you, oh, you know, you should be, jogging or getting on your Peloton or, you know, meditating or eating green vegetables or, you know, having lots of, you know, conscious communication and, and all of these other, other tools that are obviously, you know, have a lot of potential to support people. Um, but I don't believe that everybody is, that everybody's meant to do the same things. And um, I think what's most important is, is to just look at our own routines and say, you know, how do I feel? How is this for me? So if these, if, if this, this little, um, lifestyle medicine plan you have going on feels good to you and, and you feel well, then 
that's pretty extraordinary. I haven't met many people that have um, those tools and, and are thriving, but never say never. Well, this is awesome news. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is working great for me. <laughs> I mean, what is better than sleeping eight to 18 hours, wake up, eat a piece of cake, record some podcasts, drive around, come home, eat some more cake, and go back to sleep? I can't beat it. I mean, maybe you're some sort of superhero that 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 that, that feels good and that's working for you. Especially chocolate cake, like really rich chocolate cake. It kind of gives me a buzz. And then that's why and also like when I go to sleep, it gives me really cool dreams. There you go. Sounds kind of medicinal. Very medicinal. So I, I think maybe I have found the true elixir to life. It sounds like it. At least your life. Yeah. You're a good coach. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I guess the question is, um, is there is there anything missing for you? Is there anything that you um, that you're feeling like ingredients in your life that you know that may not be as present as as they once were or as they could be you know it's uh it's interesting to reflect on no what would happen if we threw another ingredient into the recipe you know how would that change i I, I don't i don't think about that stuff wow because you know why would i want to make myself feel bad so I try not to think about the things I don't have. That's a really long, long, uh, long as I got my cake in my bed. <laughs> sounds like a really adaptive coping strategy there, and, <laughs> and and quite frankly, really smart to not think about the things you don't have. Um, if if those things are going to make you feel sad or disappointed or lacking, and you have a sense of contentment, I don't know a lot of people who people's whose minds um, are quite that buttoned up. No, I think my mind is kind of open, not really buttoned up. I, I think my mind is so open that I realized that there's a whole like most of our society is chasing. When they don't have to be chasing. When all you really have to do is enjoy. Yeah. I I think that that's, um, that's a really beautiful sentiment. I, you know, I think that there's way too much chasing. I totally and completely agree with that. And I think that the more we can um, look at, what we do have and what gives us a sense of pleasure and fulfillment, then, you know, then the happier we'll be. I guess the thing is in my career, I think what, what brings people pleasure and fulfillment is really kind of vast. You know, there's so many different, you know, some people, you know, need, um, by nature are, for example, highly competitive, you know, other people, not because, not because they're not kind, it's just because they love the game and they like to play the game and the game is fun for them, you know, and maybe it's ego driven or not, but the game is, the game is really fun. Other people really love 
you know, and get a lot of fulfillment and happiness out of being in service to other people of, you know, helping people. And, you know, that's a path to fulfillment. And, you know, I, I think, but my point is, is that it's, it's, there's a range, right? Everybody has, has a formula, has their own um, path to what makes them feel full and content. Um, And the more we understand that, I think the better. Uh, and I think it's a really easy trap to fall into like shoulds, right? A lot of shoulds, like you should right. be doing this and you should be doing that. And, you know, and look at all the things that you should be doing or all the things that you don't have. And I think regardless of who you are and what your modus operandi is, you know, that is a formula for a lot of suffering. Well, yeah, the Buddha did say craving is what causes our suffering. It's true. It's so, true. So the answer is simple. Just don't crave anything. Yeah. But how do we, how do we, how do people control that? I think it's easy. Just don't think about stuff. Mm. Just enjoy breathing in and out, living, being aware, being in the present moment, accepting things the way they are. Give up struggle. Yeah. That's a practice. Doesn't come so naturally to a lot of the people that I've crossed paths with, you know, but. um, Why is that, you think? Why do you think that so many people struggle with that? What is it they want? Like, what are all these people trying to chase down that they'll never have? Like, why do people waste so much time looking for things in this life, knowing that in the end they're going to die and leave it behind anyway? Well, I think that there's some sense to me. Yeah, I hear you. I think that there's some really fundamental things that, you know, that happen. I think that people are oftentimes born not feeling like they're enough just to be that that there's, you know, that there's a level of achievement necessary or a level of, you know, material success or a whole host of things looking a certain way. Um performing in a certain capacity. And I think that, you know, that not enoughness can really, really haunt people. Um, so that there's this, there's this ever, ever striving and searching outside of themselves. And, you know, the one thing we know about kind of money and financial success and, and all kinds of accolades are that, you know, they're not, you can't take them with you when you do die because they're not you. So it's, it's with a, with sort of a, a vacancy around kind of a spiritual connection to the soul. I think that, um, people get very, very caught up in their ego and I, and, and I, I, I think that the smartest, wisest, most amazing people fall into these traps, including myself. And not that I'm the smartest, most amazing, wisest, but that everybody fall, you know, most people fall into, fall into that. And it's very, very, very hard to, um, escape it. And I think that the concept of interconnectedness 
is a big one for people when we're such an individualized society. So, so I think that, you know, interdependence and interconnectedness is what um, ultimately helps us kind of get away from our own needs and our own ego. And, and I think that especially in today's society, with social media and with all of the information constantly coming at us, it just is, is continually reinforcing that not enoughness, that kind of, you know, all the shoulds, as I mentioned before, and all the things that we don't have and all the things that we supposedly need to have, whether it's a certain type of body or a certain product or a certain amount of money or a certain type of career or whatever, whatever, a certain outfit. It's, um, it's intense. Hmm. So what do you think would happen? I mean, with the current state of things now, and everybody's all panicking over world war three and there being a nuclear war. Let's say it happens and everything gets blown up and we have to go back to being primitive. There's no electricity. There's no money. There's no government. There's really nothing to strive for except survival. What happens then to all this egocentric stuff that people have been building their lives on for the last 300 years? Well, I think that um, when people get stripped down to, to the bare bones like that when all of the material and infrastructure and you know everything everything collapses then we're left with ourselves and with each other to try to survive you know that's that interdependence you know we we are sort of uh pack animals right we we actually need each other if we're living in um if we're living in in the woods for primitive and we're by ourselves, you know, we need, um, we need one another to survive. Uh, that's essential. And, you know, the stress, the sort of fight or flight response gets triggered. For example, when we feel really disconnected or really isolated, it, it makes us feel unsafe. Um, and so I think that if everywhere, everything were to get stripped down and taken away, um, then yeah, we would have to go back to some of those basic, those basic instincts around helping ourselves, helping one another, you know, it brings it down to, um, the essence of, of who we are as humans, I think. So the survivors of World War III maybe end up being happier than all the population that exists right now because they're going to be reconnecting. I guess if we want to we want to take it down that road that far, I think that, you know, there's also like, you know, they'll, they'll be sitting with a tremendous amount of grief and and loss and you know that um you know, there's, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the, in the story you're, you're outlining right now. And so I think that that's, 
very, very real. Um, but yeah, when push comes to shove, if, you know, many people die and there's only a small number of people left to try to survive on this earth and infrastructure is gone and, you know, and we're in, in survival mode, um, would they be happier? I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think that they would connect with some of the basic fundamental aspects of sort of humanity. And, 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 and that I think is something that many of us are missing or lacking or, you know, feel far away from in day-to-day life that there's great value in trying to reconnect it, reconnect with it. Do you think that it would result in them putting more emphasis in the future on simple spiritual values and community values rather than uh, materialism? I mean, listen, one would hope, but I don't know, you know, given we ended up here for a reason, you know, I mean, is, is human nature, um, so complicated that, you know, it would have to require a, a lot of intention not to want to kind of rebuild back to some, uh, to be, to be, to be similar to, to the, to the memory of how it was. I think, you know, we naturally kind of grasp for things that have been lost and, and we found ourselves here for a reason where we are right now in this ultra materialistic world. So one would hope that God forbid, you know, the world crumbled and society crumbled that we would be able to start anew in a way that was, um, more enlightened, but, um, that would, that would require, that would require intention, a lot of intention. Hmm. So when people come to you for help, um, it seems like you have a very customized approach. Like you kind of find out what the person wants and help them try to achieve that, no matter what it is. You don't tell them what they need and what they don't need. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely correct. Um, you know, I really believe in meeting people where they are. I really believe in empowering people to find their way and acting as a bit of a mirror and a, and a catalyst to help them understand what that is. So, you know, my personal background is as a psychotherapist and a meditation teacher, and I taught yoga for many years and I've done a tremendous amount of coaching. Um, and I have some expertise in, in lifestyle medicine. And so I, um, you know, my work is, is a bit of a hybrid depending on what people need. So, uh, you know, again, it's really about supporting people in looking at their lives and, you know, where they need to put more emphasis and what ingredients in their lives they need more of it's in looking at, in some cases, you know, looking at their emotional landscape, you know, their ego, looking at the things that, that cause them pain and really getting to some of the root sources of that suffering, which is oftentimes, you know, around 
what I mentioned before, you know, not enough or different types of attachment wounds and things like that. And so, you know, my work can be really, really deep, or it can be very much um, kind of on the lifestyle medicine plane around kind of practices that will help people um, start to cultivate kind of mind, heart and body um, in a way that feels better to them. But I'm not a big believer in that, you know, there's one way. I think that, that we all, um, have to find our way. I think there are certain, certain ingredients that, that are really helpful to, um, to have in our lives, to, to have sort of resilience in this crazy world that we're living in. Um, but I think that the actual manifestation of those things, of those ingredients is, is very nuanced depending on the person. So, um, you know, some people like to, you know, like to go deep into spiritual practice. Other people, you know, love sports, right? Like they love to be active and that, and that's, that's really important to them, you know, in, in their, you know, just on a, on a cellular level, you know, other people are very, very drawn towards connection and community. And that's what nourishes them and fills them up for other people. It's the arts or music. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I think it's, it's highly individual, my work. Hmm. What is the most painful thing in your life that you've had to overcome and how did you do it? Mm, that's a really good question. Let me think about that for a moment. Huh. Well, the most painful thing in my life. You know, I think the most painful thing in my life has been um, patterns or limiting beliefs that I've had about myself that come from kind of early, early experiences in my life that, you know, that, that were certainly painful. Um, I lost a very, very, very dear friend when I was a, a, a little girl and, she, and that, that death was, was very traumatic for me. Um, at the time I didn't realize how traumatic it was. But the way that it shaped my understanding of myself and of the world ended up perpetuating me forward um, in a pattern that took me a long time to really understand and in the meantime caused me a lot of pain and then looking back on it after having under after having come to an understanding of kind of what those limiting beliefs were all about. Um, you know, I, I had to, I had to work, work through that. Um, so, so to be a little more specific, you know, I, for many, many years was, was carrying around a lot of guilt, uh, around, around my friend's death. And I, I had a sense of responsibility. I was in mm, fourth grade when she died. And that propelled that sense of guilt, that sense of um, 
feeling like horrible things could happen and do happen uh, planted the seeds of a lot of fear and um, a feeling of a debt to be owed to the world for me because of that guilt and a lot of sort of a pattern of catastrophizing. So thinking that, you know, any little thing could lead to just the most horrific thing that you could ever imagine happening, like a little girl dying. Um, And so that belief system um, was really kind of wired into my nervous system. And it caused me a lot of anxiety through the years, a lot. And it's part of why, you know, interestingly, I always say kind of, you know, some of these patterns can be very painful, but they're not, they're not all bad because sometimes they bring amazing things. It's part of why I early on in my career decided to be a social worker because I felt deeply committed to service and helping the world. And, you know, I, I got my undergraduate degree in social work, my graduate degree in social work. I was, I was really rolling up my sleeves and, and wanting to kind of move forward with, um, with that intention and and that anxiety that I felt around just the fear of, of horrible things happening all the time, um, or the need to control things. I, I really did a lot of work with meditation and yoga and breath work. And that's part of at a very young age in my kind of late teens, early twenties, you know, how I found practices that ended up and have ended up kind of shaping my life and serving me in, in many, many ways. So that's, I think how I would answer that question. Did that experience also sort of make you like a, an overachiever? That's a great question. Um, I am a perfectionist and my overachieving, interestingly, you know, didn't really, and I am an overachiever, um, but that didn't really, or I would say I used to be more of an overachiever. Maybe I'm sort of a recovering overachiever, Um, but I, um, I would say that that, tendency didn't really set in until I became a mom. I'm a mother of three teenagers. And so, you know, about 17 years ago, when I became a mom, my nervous system went (laughs) and something that trauma kind of kicked in. And, you know, I went into some sort of fight or flight mode because of that wiring and, and definitely, um, a lot of the fear set in and, and probably along with all of that, you know, some overachievement kind of in, in the, in the hopes of having control, control over, over horrible, catastrophic things happening. You were afraid of your children dying. Perhaps. Because of what happened to you as a child. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Good work. <laughs> Thank you. Or just something horrible happening, right? I yeah. think that as, 
something bad happening, somebody not being okay, you know, that, that was very frightening. Do you have a fenced in yard? <laughs> Why do you ask? Because I think a person with a fenced in yard would show that they're afraid of people running out into the street, particularly children. Mm. Yes, my yard is fenced in, but it's more to keep the deer out than mm. the kids in. Because <laughs> um, I live in, in the country. And uh, actually, just last night, I was woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning, speaking of my fence, which has holes in it. I was woken up at three o'clock in the morning by my dog who is only 15 pounds. She's not a very big dog. Um, barking like crazy at a coyote that was about 10 to 15 feet from my window. I have a modern house where the, the mm. windows are floor to ceiling. And, um, and there was also a fox out there. There was like a party in my backyard at three o'clock in the morning with the coyote and the fox and my dog was going nuts. And um, yeah, that was scary. I, you know, that dog can no longer go, used, used to be able to let her out kind of into run around the backyard off the leash without us. Like right now, for example, I could just open the door and she'd run outside and go to the bathroom, et cetera. And um, now we realize that there's a coyote hunting her. So that little pup will not be going outside anymore uh, off leash. So, and that's not because of my childhood trauma. That's just because I'd rather her not die. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know how, how much like coyotes are really that much of a threat. I think they tend to eat things like bunny rabbits and stuff like that. Squirrels. Maybe. Although she's a smallish dog. Makes yeah, me a little nervous. Yeah, but a coyote eating a dog is almost like cannibalism. Because coyote is sort of in a dog family. It's true. It's true. Because coyotes and wolves can mate. Right. We might have to, we're going to call the local, you know, animal control department and find out what they say. <laughs> As long as they don't kill the coyote, as long as they only relocate them. No, we. You know what we did? We we have one of those horns, like a loud horn, and um, you know, we we honked the horn, and the coyote went running. So. Mm. So, have you ever had clients come to you, and you've had to turn them away because you just knew that it wasn't going to work? Not really, to be honest. I um, There have been times where I have felt that, that other professionals were needed, you know, as part of a team. Um, maybe one more recently, um, somebody came somebody came to me and and their boundaries were really, really, really non-existent. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. And I didn't feel there's some cases when that's part of the work, right? Where that's okay. You recognize somebody doesn't have great boundaries and part of the work is helping establish boundaries and, and that's fine. But something instinctively, intuitively told me, and this is literally just one person I can think of in, you know, in a lot of years of practice that I had those kind of inner sensors that said, thanks, but no thanks. 
this isn't, this isn't a good match. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I gently, I gently communicated that and, and referred him out. Probably a good idea. So you've never taken on a client that was just completely insane. No, I'm not really, I, let's put it this way. Back when I was practicing as a clinical social worker in a, in a, as part of a, as part of a clinic, um, I worked with severely mentally ill people who were, um, very disenfranchised, um, with, you know, multiple diagnoses, including schizophrenia and major depressive, just, you know, just a, a lot of, a lot of heavy mental health work. Um, and I did that for about 10 years, but I did it in, um, in a clinic setting. So I had a whole team and I was in an office with colleagues and that felt, and I had a lot of support from my team and I had a psychiatrist, um, as part of my team and that was appropriate. But right now, you know, my private practice is not really set up to handle people who are dealing with very severe mental illness. Hmm. Well, I work in a, uh, in a group home with people that are like that. And for me, like the more fractured the reality is, the more I like them. Yeah, I get that. Uh, it's just I, I, I feel that way too. <laughs> I love those people. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's, um, I think what we realize when we do this work and, and I have to say, you know, one of the most interesting things about my career is that I've worked with people, a very, very wide range of people. So, you know, back when I was doing what I described, when I was, I was working, you know, up in the Bronx and out in, in Brooklyn for these various social services agencies, I worked in, in psych units and hospitals and partial hospital programs, you know, that I loved that work. And at the same time that I was doing that work, I was also doing a lot of teaching of yoga and meditation to a very different demographic. I was working with like those really high performers that we mentioned at the beginning of this call, you know, mm -hmm. people who had kind of reached the very tip top of their career. And according to outward, you know, kind of standards, they were, you know, they were killing it and, and they were um, in some cases, you know, really suffering inside. And one of the most amazing things that I was able to notice when I was doing that work and working with, you know, these two populations at the same time, kind of some of the most successful people in the world, literally, as well as some of the most disenfranchised people who are really, really struggling. Um, usually the, the, those highly successful people were on the sort of the ultra neurotic side of mental health. And one of the things that I noticed is that um, they were all, all of the people that I was working with in any one given day were all, including myself, by the way, you know, were all kind of equally happy and equally miserable. You know, that there was no real difference between the people who had very little to the people who had 
so much on a material level. Their, their, um, their worries were the same. Everybody was worried about, you know, substance abuse and their children and marriages and, you know, health and money. And I mean, it was the same exact categories, just in different, you know, outfits, really. Um, and in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, the people who had very little from material material perspective um, and who even were dealing with pretty significant mental health issues, you know, were able to more easily and readily access joy. Um, you know, there was a sense of, um, you know, some of the simple pleasures would bring, would bring greater joy. And, um, most of the joy in their lives came from people or relationships. Um, and that was really powerful. And, and I just found it was a bit of a sociological experiment experiment for me, um, working in these different demographics, you know, taking the subway from one part of the city to the other part of the city. And, and I fell in love with all of my clients. I always, you know, of course, meaning like appropriately platonic love, but, but I think really, uh, once you really see somebody, once you really know somebody in my experience, it's actually, um, at least for me, really hard not to, not to appreciate them and, and have a lot of love for them. And so, uh, yeah, I love, I love that you work in, in a group home and, and find it so enjoyable and I, I get it. Yeah. I just like people that are different that think differently mm-hmm. than other people. It's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned something like, you know, it doesn't matter how much or what a person has that, that, that creates their happiness and joy. And he's in that it's usually more people's joy seems to be come more from their connections and their relationships than anything else. That is very much what I see and believe. Um, I believe that, you know, the opposite of, of, of suffering is, is connection. Um, and I think that it's one of the reasons why, you know, during the pandemic and even during this chapter of our lives, when people are more isolated, um, why the suffering is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we have this mental health crisis and, you know, people are, you know, I have teenagers, you know, they're people are filling up on kind of junk food connection, you know, on, on social media and whatnot. They feel like they're connected to a lot of people, but that's not, it's literally like filling up on junk food. It's not filling them up. It's not real connection. And um, I think that it's just a source of tremendous, tremendous pain. And I think that when people can find, connection. It's like a salve. It's listen, you know, like I, I, I've known and worked with a lot of people in recovery and part of, part of the healing, for example, of, of going to a, you know, an AA meeting or a group of, of any sort is just that experience of 
being with other people in authenticity, being seen, being heard, you know, that is such a powerful healing modality. I agree. You know, I've been in recovery myself for almost 35 years and I've always felt that the connection with the people is what helped me the most. I always kind of thought the steps and all the God stuff was kind of BS actually. I've always disregarded that part of it. But for me, it was always about having a connection with other people. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. And, and, um, I think that, I think that the more we can really understand that as a society, um, the more we can hopefully start to, as we come out of this really weird chapter, hopefully, uh, in terms of the level of isolation, um, that people will understand the incredible importance that it's like medicine being with other people. And, you know, to your, to your story earlier about kind of what if the whole world just collapses and infrastructure goes away, you know, will we, you know, will, will those that are left be able to kind of evolve in a more enlightened way that's less material oriented and more focused on connection and interdependence, you know, I, I guess I would say that I hope that the world doesn't have to completely collapse, but that some of the pain and suffering that we've been through and are in are going through at this, at this exact moment will um, help people begin to more actively understand and move towards connection and interdependence as, you know, as a priority and as a way of life and, and figure out um, how that can help get us through and, and ultimately heal us. Do you think that the isolation that's been caused by COVID do you think that was a contributor to like what has happened in the United States, like the insurrection? Do you think that that the isolation fed that demon? I think so. I hadn't actually thought of it until you just said it, but it feels as though um, it feels as though that level of isolation that was happening. Um, you know, brought more people into kind of a dark place and brought more people, you know, into social media and on their screens, which was their only outlet for, you know, entertainment, connection, you name it. Um, and, and I think that definitely fueled the fire among probably many, many other things, but it seems like it's, it was probably one of the levers or one of the variables that, you know, that led us down that path. Right, because you have a bunch of people feeling isolated, and then they find this connection through these weird <laughs> ideas that makes them feel empowered. Totally. And then they act out on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Needing a sense of belonging, needing, you know, and, and really, uh, you know, an outlet for so much 
anger and pain and suffering that, you know, had just been cooking in the months prior. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't want to think of that until now either. So it's not like I just <laughs> had an idea. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's this crazy soup that we've been, you know, stirring this pot of 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 pain um over the last several years and it's just i don't i don't think there's a person that i talk to that just thinks uh, it's hard to even believe kind of where we are and and how challenging you know how challenging things have become in in this moment, although I do, you know, I do also like amidst all of the darkness, one of the things that I do see is like that the light, you know, the, where we can find it, where we can locate the light, where we can, um, it's not always easy to find, but it's there. And when we find it, like it's really bright um, and it is a real force for healing and that force for healing and, you know, just evolution of, of the species of the spirit, you know, is, is trying, it's trying to poke through, it's trying to get, it's trying to get through all of this, but um you know, it's, it's a thick blanket of, of darkness, but there's, but I just, I've also seen just the brightest, most glimmering light in people, um, in ideas. And I guess, you know, that's kind of the, the thread of hope that I personally kind of hang on to. Hmm. So what that, about you? Um, Have you noticed that? I, I mean, I definitely noticed a whole lot more darkness. That is for sure. Um, and I've also noticed, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's because of what's happening in the world or just because I started this podcast. And I've done 400 interviews with all different types of people. Um, that there seems to be a whole lot more interest in spiritual connection to some type of so some type of some type of recognition of what you're talking about that everything is connected. Yeah. You know, and 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 when you're talking about your four pillars, I'm getting the impression that the connectedness is the most important one. Even though maybe you wouldn't want to say it that way, you know, depending on who you're coaching, but <laughs> Actually, yeah. no, I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, interestingly, sometimes I'll be working with people and they'll say, well, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong. Like I run five miles, I get on my Peloton, I do yoga every day. I, you know, I meditate every day. I eat kale and avocados every day. Like why, why am I not doing okay? What's wrong here? And, and usually, um, particularly, and, and that's a, a pretty sort of, you know, for some of my kind of high performers, as we talked about, mm -hmm. you know, that, that might be a very typical landscape of, of their lives. You know, they, 
they're checking the boxes of all the things that they quote unquote should be doing. But oftentimes what's missing is that sense of intimacy, of authenticity, of, you know, feeling like they can show up real and be seen and be heard despite, you know, who they are and, 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 and in their vulnerability. And so, um, that, that ingredient of connection. And it also includes, by the way, connection with ourselves and kind of doing the real work of understanding, you know, understanding what our own patterns are, what our own obstacles are. Like I mentioned to you earlier in my own path, you know, I've had to do a lot of work to kind of connect and see, you know, uh, where is this coming from? And that was a process of peeling off the layers of the onion and, and learning to mm-hmm. connect with the deeper parts of myself and some of them, the sort of the tender, scarier, shit, more shadowy, darker zones, you know? And, and, and once I was able to do that work and really connect with that vulnerability, I was able, able to heal. And then of course, you know, that, that healing has led me to a greater sense of connection to other people, to less fear, um, to the ability to, uh, work with grace, you know, to have grace, grace for myself, like allow, allow this sense of grace for myself, for other people talk about, you know, being an overachiever or workaholic or whatever you want to call it, you know, just that softness and, and that surrender. And, but yeah, uh, to bring it full circle, I think it's, it's, it's through connection with others authentically. It's through connection with ourselves. Um, it's doing that work. It's that willingness to, to show up real, um, and raw that is the key the most important pillar for sure because you know you can get away with eating cake you can get away and not kale (laughs) you can get away with you know you know as long as you're moving you know you don't have to be an ultra marathoner Um, you know, you, you need your sleep, you know, but without connection, without real connection, like you can't really get away with any version of not having that and be really okay. In my experience. I agree. I agree. Like my issue was, um, you know, and I learned, you know, I went to therapy when I was a kid trying to figure out why I wasn't feeling good and stuff like that. And what I discovered was, you know, it was basically because of neglect as a kid, you know, and how the neglect affected me. And I didn't have that connection that I should have had with my parents and my family as a child. And it was hard for me to make that connection, too, because I didn't know how to do it. Um, But the knowledge of it, just the knowledge itself, wasn't enough to to fix it, you know. you know, it, it really took me a long time to get over a, a really bizarre, irrational fear. And my fear was, what if they don't like me? Mm. Dumbest fear ever because even if somebody doesn't like me, like, well, how's that going to hurt me anyway? <laughs> you know, what if they do like me? 
You know, like, or like, what if half of them don't like me and half of them do like me? I still end up ahead. Like, no matter what, I can't lose right. in a social situation. No matter what, I, I, I'm going to make out somehow, at least with one friend probably. You know, well, I had that irrational fear. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't be alone in that one. <laughs> no, I'm not the only one who've had that. <laughs> no, but it's it's real. That pain is real. And, you know, and those, you know, that, that wounding from neglect and, you know, some of those kind of what we call primary attachments when those don't don't show up in a way that really nourish us and fill us up and protect us. And, you know, it, it definitely creates, as I was mentioning, some of those patterns in the nervous system that make mm -hmm. our brains start to work in ways that, you know, um, can really, uh, can really cause some pain and suffering until we can, can understand it. And, and then hopefully, you know, move past it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, it sounds like you were able to to move through that one. Yeah, now I'm not at all, you know, except maybe a little bit sometimes, like in romantic situations, like dating and stuff. I might get a little nervous or something, but you're human, you know, you're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like for most part, though, like because of that, though, I'm, I'm like super hyper aware now of how important it is to connect with other people, um, you know. One of the things I did during COVID was I started this podcast. And I, you know, and some of my guests I, I've really, really gotten close to, you know, and That's I value amazing. those relationships because, you know, without it, I would have met all these great people. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I was thinking that actually when when you started this podcast and you kind of, you know, we were chatting and you mentioned how many episodes you've done. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's a lot of really amazing or hopefully amazing conversations, you know, that were opportunities for, for real authentic connection. Certainly it takes two to tango, you know, the, the guest has to show up ready to, ready to be real and, and make that connection. Um, but it seems as though you, because of how you show up, you kind of bring that out in other people, I would guess, just because you're clearly um, really not afraid of just keeping it real. And when you're with somebody like that, um, it makes it a lot less scary to, you know, to show up authentically ourselves. So... Nice work on that. Thanks. It really did take me about a hundred episodes to get the hang of this, though. <laughs> it was not instant. <laughs> I thought about going back and deleted the, deleting the first hundred episodes. Really? Why? What were they? What was? What was it about them that didn't feel good to you? I, I would try to prepare for them. Ah. You know, and I, and I would, no, I would try to, I don't know, sound good. Right. And now I find the, the and this goes back to the whole success of being happy and, and wealthy thing. I find the less that I try, the harder I work at something, the better things turn out. Mm. And the more successful and more successful I am. If I'm if I really have to try hard at something, then I'm probably not doing it right. 
Yeah. Or it's not the right thing for me to be doing. I hear that. There's something that, you know, when, when you're really in flow, when you're really in alignment with yourself, when you're in alignment with your own personal values, you know, when you're not being guided by limiting beliefs, you know, or fears and you're doing your thing, there's, there is a quality I find as well of just ease that happens and it doesn't feel like you're swimming upstream or, um, you know, or it's too hard. So I, I think that when people can really get into alignment, then, then there's an effortlessness that happens. Although I think sometimes, quite frankly, we need to be out of alignment in order to get into alignment. Sometimes we actually need to feel what doesn't feel right um, in order to understand kind of where we need to go. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that listening that's really important mm-hmm. is like really that openness to just listening. Like, how does this feel? And, you know, I'm not adverse to hard work. I think sometimes hard work is a really good muscle to flex. But I think that stress, like things that feel really stressful, uh, is is different. And And I would agree, though, that when you're really doing kind of doing something that is in alignment with your kind of gifts or, or, or just innate strengths that, that there's absolutely effortlessness that happens. That's how I, that's how I feel when I'm working one-on-one with clients. It's like, this is not work. This Mm -hmm. just feels like what I'm supposed to be doing and what I would want to be doing. It's the best. Right. And that's the way this feels for me as well. You know, I, I did, you know, like the 400 episodes only been a year and a half. And I work full time, <laughs> so it's amazing. But but it's it's easy. It's not like work, you know. I mean, it is work because I mean I put a lot of work into, you know, creating all this content and finding right. guests and things like that. Especially in the beginning, like now, not so much. It just kind of happens. But that's because I've built it. Um, but yeah, it, I mean. You know, anything else, like when I'm in situations where I'm working hard and I'm struggling and I'm not getting ahead and I feel like I am keep taking steps backwards, that's kind of when I know like, I have to kind of step back and I have to reevaluate, like, is this the right thing for me? And that's in like all areas. It's in work. It's in finances. It's in relationships. It's everywhere. It's so true. That's such a, that, that's such a great insight. You know, it's, it's. Uh, it's in what you said earlier, it's not that you're not working hard. I mean, it takes time and energy to, you know, to, to, to do everything you're doing with this podcast. It's just that, you know, it's, it's not stressful for you. It's kind of in flow, so to speak. There's, there's joy in it. You, you obviously like, like what you're doing and, um, and that's beautiful. And that's why you're so good at it. And it also allows me to use one thing that actually sort of holds me back, which is I, I definitely think differently than other people. Like that whole nuclear war scenario. I'm sure like nobody's asked you that question before. That's just my, <laughs> no, my, my brain asking. just works in this bizarre way, which sort of works in this particular scenario. Isn't that amazing how that's like such a strength? And, and in this setting, you know, it really makes for super interesting conversations. Uh, 
I love that, that you can use that gift in this way, uh, on these podcasts, that gift of your brain, not working or thinking along the lines of, of everybody else, super thought provoking and kind of makes my brain or other people's brains have to sort of stretch a little bit and say, okay, wait, all right, how do I, how do I break through some of these defenses that doesn't even want to think about something like that and actually kind of hold that idea for a minute and respond to it. And it's a good exercise for your guests. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever have clients that have obvious talents and you have trouble like just pointing them out to them? They're like, no, it's not a talent. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Oftentimes people have such huge blind spots around kind of, you know, really what their, you know, what their gifts are. And they, and and again, that gets back to the shoulds, you know, um, I, I learned from this expression from my friends, teenagers who say in my teenagers caught on to it, which is like, when you tell a teenager, you know, you should do this or you should do that. They say, don't should on me. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, teenagers don't like to be shoulded on. I don't like and it either. No, actually grownups don't like it either for sure. But we tend to, you know, sometimes we tend to do it to other people if we're not careful um, and, and awake and aware of that. Uh, but, but yeah, I think people, you know, sometimes people, think that they should be doing certain things and it creates a huge blind spot for them and recognizing where their, where their real gifts and, and passions are. And, you know, again, like what we were saying earlier, all that attachment to kind of material success and thinking that, you know, they need all these things that they might not really need can also help um, be a contributor to why people kind of have those blind spots and don't see, Oh, you know, I'm actually really an artist or, you know, all I really want to do is art and, and maybe, you know, maybe I need to make space for that in my life in a more significant way. And, um, I see it all the time. Interesting. And it's easy. It's, 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 I will say that like, we can point it out to people Mm -hmm. all day long, but, Ultimately, I think people really need to get there on their own, right? We need to be able to kind of ask the right questions and help people get to those realizations independently, you know? So if they're not doing what, what they love or, you know, where their, you know, where their true gifts are, you know, asking them questions about, um, how that feels, you know, how it feels to be doing what they're doing, how it feels when they're doing the things that we think they're really gifted at and kind of helping them get in touch with, with some of those truths is really important. Sounds like you might have company. Yeah. My door just opened. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but that is absolutely true because I've had people point things out to me too. But I refused to listen. I had to figure it out for myself. I had to discover it myself. Um, for some reason, I didn't take. Oh, oh, my mind would tell me like, oh, this person is just saying that because they like me, right? But I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't tell myself. Oh, maybe it's actually true. 
Right. So how did you figure out that? By trial and error. Right. And sometimes it takes being in a lot of pain, quite frankly. Right. Sometimes we have to be in a lot of pain because we're not doing what, what we are really kind of most aligned to be doing kind of the highest and best expression of who we are. And, and that can cause a lot of pain and suffering, you know, over a long period of time. And sometimes, you know, that's part of our process to kind of getting in touch with what we really do need and want to be doing. Absolutely. Um, so before we wrap this up, I want to thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you today. And uh, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and your book? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. This was awesome. I absolutely <laughs> love this conversation. And thanks for giving my brain a little bit of a workout this morning. And I, um, I can be found. Well, my business is called Golden. And my website is called heyitsgolden.com. And we deliver a lot of really supportive wellness programs to organizations, to both for-profit and non-profit organizations um, and supporting teams and employees get well. I personally do a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one coaching and I can be reached through my company's website as well. And my book, Inner Wealth, can be found on Amazon. Awesome. Well, I'll put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can uh, check you out and buy your book and use your services. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it was a total pleasure and I thank you for your time and yeah, best of luck. <laughs> Thanks. You too. And just hang on for one moment. I have to play the outro. Okay. Change your life.